my shoes. My name is Peter Edelman. I'm here with Diana Okamachoff, and we're very fortunate to have with us today uh, Justice Alan Diner from the Federal Court of Canada, who's been kind enough to join us to uh, talk about his, his experiences in the Federal Court and uh, hopefully a number of other issues. So, uh, so welcome. Thank you. Uh, so I think that Justice Diner is known to many in our sector because uh, he came from the immigration field as a private practitioner. And even prior to that, uh, I understand that uh, Justice Diner came to Canada in uh, the 70s, I think it was, is that right? Um, from South Africa and then uh, uh, spent, just prior to being appointed to the bench, uh, was working with uh, Baker and McKenzie uh, in, an in an immigration practice. Um, but we'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about your own immigration journey and what your practice was like uh, and before we get into the view from the bench. Sure, and thanks very much for having me. I came with my family. I uh, can't say I was a self-motivated immigrant like many of my former clients or many of the people that I see today. I came with my parents and I guess they made the choice for us and um, it was in the days where immigration wasn't as stringent and, um, and careful and there weren't all the concerns I guess that there were today because my father had a green card um, to move to the States. Specifically, Miami was where we were going to move from Durban in South Africa, a nice seaside resort to another seaside resort. And for some crazy reason, Toronto came into his mind and he went to visit the Canadian consulate in or the High Commission in London on the way over to North America and said, well, I'm on my way over to Miami, Florida, but um, happy to consider Toronto. And at least the story he tells me is five days later, we had an immigrant visa. So maybe those were the, the, the way that, um, that that's how things could have worked in the past. I've never heard of, um, I've heard of quick PNP decisions, but nothing in the realm of five days. Uh, maybe even being four days, I'd have to confirm with him. But um, different times and... Um, you know, it's it's been, in hindsight, a wonderful journey, and I suppose I have a, a an empathy because no matter where you're from, even though we were coming from, I suppose, a privileged place compared to a lot of my country folk in South Africa, um, it's still um, fraught with challenges, immigration. I mean, you feel as a kid... You feel, I saw my parents go through their struggles on finding the right employment, adjusting to social circles, um, and all those questions, you, all the cultural differences you go from. And so from an early age, I appreciated what it was, um, definitely didn't go through some of the uh, really difficult struggles that certain classes of immigrants have to go through, but I gained, I think, a certain appreciation for being an immigrant and seeing some of my friends who had come from that country and other countries and knew that um, in a certain way that this was a field I, I thought I would like to be around, although 
Um, not always. I, I did um, have my struggles with it through the years. Mm. And um, anyway, I, that's that's the immigrant background I came from. Mm. Well, maybe tell us a little bit about your your sort of career progression once you did get into the into the law field. Were you always an immigration practitioner, or did that develop later? Well, uh, I, I ended up um, being fortunate enough to uh, article at the Federal Court of Appeal with a very respected and uh, lovely man, um, now retired, Jim Hugeson. So Mr. Justice Hugeson was, I believe, at the time, if not the youngest, certainly one of the youngest appointees to the Quebec court and became the associate chief of the Quebec Superior Court in, may even have been in his 30s, if not in his early 40s. And he ultimately came to the Court of Appeal in Ottawa, and that's where I, I got a clerkship. And, and I did struggle with um, some of the things we used to deal with, patent unreasonableness. <laughs> and um, given my, my um, feelings um, and where I'd come from, I, I thought, well, um, this is something that um, people need to deal with. And I admire Justice Hugeson for dealing with it. But it's something that I never want to have to deal with professionally. Um, and so I said to him, uh, Justice Hugeson, uh, maybe you can counsel me. You've been in private practice. You've been a professor. You've certainly uh, now are um, a public servant. And so where of those areas do you suggest that I orient myself? And he um, gave me certain counsel. And I just put one caveat on that. I said, I will not do anything related to immigration. No, thank you. I've, <laughs> I've uh, um, seen it. Uh, I've been there. I've done it. I, I've done some um, human rights work while I was at law school um, in Jamaica, in Puerto Rico. And um, I said, I think I'll do something else. And um, so whatever you tell me, just um, point me somewhere other than immigration. And so um, I came out of articling, did my bar ads, and uh, went to work for Giddy Mammon in Toronto. Um, that's the um, that was the job that I found. It was a difficult time in '95, and you know when you fall into something, um, not for want of trying some other avenues, when you fall into something, it's you you almost become branded with it as if. Um, you are stamped with that, I don't know if it's a seal of approval, but certainly you're stamped with that identity badge professionally. Um, and I found myself um, being with that immigration moniker. I did make efforts to go and explore the world, and I did um, move into other areas of corporate law. I did international trade. I did competition law because I'd done a master's, a nighttime master's, while I moved from Giddy, I, I went to work at uh, Howard Greenberg's operation. It was called Greenberg Trister Turner at the time in Toronto. Uh, of course, a very prominent immigration um, outfit. And um, in any event, I um, decided at that point, well, maybe now is the time, since I haven't sowed my professional oats, um, to move into other areas. And that's why I did the master's degree. and. Uh, told my principal, Mr. Greenberg, that I was moving on um, into other areas. And so I did um, try that. 
uh, competition, international trade law. Uh, I did a bit of work at the Organization of American States, and I was always interested in interna international public, uh, not necessarily law, but also public affairs, and got some experience in that in Washington, D.C., but ultimately, um, and, and I'd written a screenplay at the time and, and even went into the film business, um, trying to get my screenplay made into a movie, but ultimately, I uh, go back to my initial point that um, I guess you are uh, where you've come from, and I come from being an immigrant, and I had then established myself early on as an immigration lawyer, and I suppose I was forever after either drawn to it in some um, uh, you know, in, in some unknown place was drawing me back to that field. I, I did I did find after I tried those other things that there was a special um, a special aspect to practicing immigration law, working with immigrants, and I guess that's where I spent the rest of my career until coming to the bench. And in the immigration field, it's it's pretty diverse. Um, I, I would imagine that your practice at Baker McKenzie was largely like a corporate immigration practice. Is that right? Though I know you did do a lot of volunteerism and working with refugees as well, but maybe you can give us a bit of a sense of what that practice Yeah, at Baker, at Baker, I built up a corporate immigration mm -hmm. practice because that's just what you, the reality of being at a big firm. Uh, there's certain financial realities to billings and, and the kind of clients that will sustain a practice at a large firm. And particularly one where you have international offices such as Baker, which many other Canadian firms have recently been adding. But um, Baker had been long established in that, in that area, and that's um, where, the, uh, where the clients tended to, to situate themselves. And so I built up that practice, but certainly we placed a, an importance on volunteerism, like you say, on pro bono work. And um, I did work with... Um, certain refugees at Baker, um, and I had also done some of that work even at other, um, like let's say a big firm where I practiced competition law, I certainly kept my feet in immigration law and there had um, been involved in helping out um, in certain areas, designated representatives, um, uh, humanitarian cases. Um, when I first started with uh, Mr. Mammon in the field, um, I had done all of those areas, enforcement side, immigration law, so I had experience with it, um, many refugee IAD hearings, and so uh, certainly had been exposed to it in the past, but hadn't done it for a while. And so, yeah, I think even for Lawyers at big firms, certainly we saw in some recent times, there was opportunities for people to get involved no matter what their practice. And I tried to keep my feet in it. Um, previous to that, I, I had been involved as a public servant for uh, one of the provincial programs. And so had an opportunity there to also get involved in some of the more public service aspects of immigration. I think... It's important to young and mature lawyers for on many for many reasons uh, for professional development for service back to the community for their knowledge. I think it's crucial that immigration lawyers don't only although the trend is to become hyper specialized in no matter what your area of practice whether it's maritime law, aboriginal law, 
immigration law to pick a few areas that we deal with on a daily basis at the federal court, I think it's important that lawyers in those fields don't become hyper-specialized in one particular area of their field. And that's especially delicate in the immigration world for the reasons I mentioned, that big firms, for instance, really can only sustain a practice in business immigration and that may be corporate clients who don't have a refugee component to their people. Um, or if they do, they would be farming it out or saying the people deal with it on their own time. They'll handle the work permit aspects. Um, for a full understanding of what can happen to that worker, maybe the worker's a refugee, it's important for the business immigration lawyer to be able to understand what the implications of those other areas of immigration law are. So even if, um, even if I was in an immigration, a purely corporate immigration setting in terms of the day-to-day -day billings and clients, I felt it was useful and I felt a moral obligation or a professional obligation to uh, try and help people in other areas. But at the same time, I thought it was, was also helpful professionally. I think any volunteerism works that way. Uh, if you give uh, to people, you will get back. You can't always just expect to get. Yeah, I get the opposite criticism. I've uh, yet to log into the electronic portal uh, myself, which I uh, am told by my solicitor friends is, uh, makes it makes my credentials as an immigration lawyer questionable. That uh, uh, <laughs> so I think I actually. Well, it's an interesting point though, because when you look at the sort of purposes of Canadian the immigration and refugee legislation it's quite dynamic at the per like right at the purpose of uh, level and I've even just in the period of my own career just seen the way that there's been a transformation within the sector of like the the birth of this kind of global migration practice it's quite a new thing and it has been uh, quite phenomenal in terms of how it's changed the way that the field actually operates like the way that the affiliations between the the accounting firms and the, the you know these big global um, operations it it does really it has fundamentally changed the way that the sector operates I imagine and I think starting with with the giddy Maman and then uh, sort of working your way through this career progression that you've talked about you would have had a very good perspective on the way that that the sector has been so transformed by the way that we are practicing yeah by I think that obviously there's there's good and bad aspects to it, and I recognize why if you're practicing in the area of LMIAs or HNCs, you'd want to really become a, a, an expert and be able to speak to that and um, assure your clients that you know everything there is possibly to know, including what came out yesterday in those areas. But um, I I place that when reservation that I think it's really good for young lawyers to expand their wings and learn about um, learn about the law the way that it used to be in the past and uh, in the past people were generalists and so it's a reality that things have changed but I, I don't think it's any less important today to at least be mindful of the fact that what you may do is not the full reality of what's out there. For sure. And I think we can't lose the forest. Uh, I think being able to see the forest is, is one of the things that makes the advice that we give to people much more useful in the sense that we can step back and say, oh, this is how 
where what we're doing fits into the bigger picture. And maybe you shouldn't be making a refugee claim. Maybe you should be exploring your other options. And often my advice to clients is explore all your other options first. For sure. Don't come into the refugee system if you don't have to. And it goes the um, same the other way as well. If you've got somebody uh, entrenched in an entire LMIA process without realizing that they sh- they have a viable refugee claim to make and they're going to delay making that claim because of the advice you provide not being fulsome advice, then you might have really jeopardized a viable refugee claim by waiting a year before they get to that. So perhaps that's a, a good segue to the view from the bench because now uh, you necessarily have to have that 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 more broad approach and perspective on on how all of these things come together to to the cases that come before you. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's it's different. It's def- definitely a, a different vantage point and uh, place to look at cases, look at the clients that you folks are bringing to the court, and indeed yourselves as officers of the court and representatives of your law societies and profession, which holds um, a very uh, formidable for young lawyers and and it's certainly not for young lawyers only we see experienced lawyers um, becoming a little bit fast and loose sometimes and um, the I think the risks are equally great as you go up the chain um, in your years of experience or up the ladder but um, I think that when you come to the court you have to uh, take it with a, a great degree of seriousness. Uh, it has great impacts for your client, it, but it also has impacts for you in the profession. And so when you're a judge, you get confronted with all sorts of crazy situations and um, you have to try and as best as you can see the justice and see where justice lies in every situation and be fair. And all of us judges do want to ultimately be fair to the parties to, to, well, of course, number one, to the individuals who are before the courts, but also uh, we want to ensure that um, the lawyers who bring their cases are respectfully treated by the courts. And, and um, so it's a symbiotic kind of relationship. Uh, we, we do hear the stories that come from the registry, how lawyers are uh, both with their clients um, outside the courtroom, particularly with the way that they interact with the registry uh, for those who go and file their papers with the registry officers, or certainly they might have interactions in interlocutory matters or on the day of the court hearing. And so I think it's it's great if, if lawyers um, keep in mind that the court is a busy place, everyone has their own stresses, and, and you're not the only ones who are dealing with uh, are dealing with the daily pressures of life. The judges are, the registry officers are, and so it's good to treat everybody with respect. And um, so we people people talk, and we hear about um, lawyers who might not be respectful in a, a three sixty degree a degree uh, kind of way. And so just be careful to prepare your case properly. Um, like, like in any setting, you're gonna, you're gonna want to put as much upfront care into ensuring that you've researched the law, that you know everything you can about the facts, that you don't 
mislead the court either in the law or the facts that you're as honest as possible if you have weaknesses in your case it's better to admit to those weaknesses but highlight areas of strength rather than trying to brush those weaknesses under the cover and hope that they're going to go away somehow um judges don't particularly i'm sorry my i will turn my sound off judges don't particularly um, love surprises and nor do your opposing counsel uh, love being sandbagged at the last minute with all sorts of um, requests that they weren't prepared to deal with and of course that's what the timelines of the court are for so try to respect the timelines try to respect your opposing counsel and uh, we like we like that the lawyers also respect the the institution of the court and that goes down to the person the usher um, there's, we're all part of the same organization. We're all trying to meet the same ends to ensure that justice is, that, that justice is done at the end of the day. And so I would, I would come to court with a, a full 360 perspective, as I said. Um, and that takes time and care and, um, a little bit of experience. So don't be afraid to reach out to your colleagues. I always tell people in Vancouver, um, that, out here, the BC Association has a wonderful way of, of um, being inclusive, uh, trying to help each other. And so I encourage more junior lawyers to uh, speak to their senior colleagues, um, Peter and Deanna. Um, I'm sure you uh, have, have been consulted on, on mentorship type issues before, but it's great if you can run by scenarios and, and how the court might view certain things and and what is the best way to approach this? And if you can't find a mentor, certainly you can ask the court if you need guidance. But that is far better than coming to court, throwing everything against the wall and hoping one of those items is going to stick and win your case. Um, actually, what I'll do is, is I did provide a list of tips drawn from my first couple of years on the bench. Tips for preparing your case, tips for when you get to court, tips for after court. And so what I'll do, if it's okay with you, is I'll send those, those tips. And, and again, I speak myself as, as an individual. I can't speak for the entire court and 34 of my colleagues. Um, but, um, or, well, that doesn't include the supernumeraries, but in any event, um, they're my personal observations on, on what would serve lawyers well to think about before they come to court, when they're at court and when they finish the hearing. I guess some of the things that, uh, and then the transition from going from private practice to the bench, um, have you, in terms of the challenges that a judge has in getting a file, and, and one of the things that I notice in getting files from other, uh, from non-litigators, uh, I mean, in our office, we do litigation and often I'm preparing files at the point of filing the initial application with all the page numbering and the affidavits and everything set up because I know that these are going to possibly end up or often are going to end up in litigation in any event. And so we structure all of our files from the initial application to the visa post in a way that they're easily transformed into applicants' records. Um, but I see that from coming from non-litigators' offices, that's not always the case. And so you have these very piecemeal kind of... Uh, um, scattershot applications that work very well in a visa post but are very difficult to recompile in a way that can be presented uh, to a judge. Um, and I'm wondering some of the things in terms of the way that things get presented both on leave 
and on uh, at the court itself in terms of certified tribunal record and, and how we present those things in the court. Um, has have your views, or, or do you have views on on uh, um, on what 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 things have you appreciated in terms of the way that those things get? Presented, um, in particular, perhaps we can start with the applicants' records. I know that my applicants' records have gotten smaller and smaller over the years. Uh, they used to be, you know, essentially a certified tribunal record, which would have everything that was on the file and and the kitchen sink, um, and so they'd be six, seven, eight hundred pages long. Um, and now, based on feedback that I've gotten at various CLEs, that would indicate that the court has maybe half an hour on a good day to decide leave on an application. You're not going to be going through 800 pages, and so my my applicants' records have gotten to 50 or 50 or 100 pages, and so I'm wondering what your experience is with uh, at the applicants' record stage, and, and where things are, what what things are being done right, and what things are being done wrong, and or am I completely off base in what I'm doing? Uh, I think you're completely on base. Not only are you on base, you've hit a home run if you do precisely what you just laid out, Peter, and, and prepare a, a visa office application as if it had to turn into litigation. Obviously, you hope that it never does, and you don't apply to the visa office hoping you're going to get into court and litigate it. Um, but if it, it can happen, and it does happen, and so most, you're right, most counsel who don't come from litigation background do not prepare their records in that way or their visa office application in that way. And it is very helpful if you do all the things you just mentioned, including keeping things concise. Even the Guinness Book of World Record um, holders um, speed reader, I, I don't think would be able to read 800 pages in half an hour. I have uh, that I'm going on judicial notice on that one. I have no uh, scientific evidence to back that up. But <laughs> I would say that um, um, obviously you want to see a substantial record that has, has merit to it, but there's other ways of doing it than adding every possible human rights treatise that has been written on that country or every possible filing that has been done for that individual. So you do want to be concise. It would be no different than if you read the tips that I've given you for your oral arguments. You want to be concise and get to the point. And what I said before, don't throw up every piece of spaghetti against the wall, just the ones which have the greatest chance of sticking. And so I, I think your points are really well taken, Peter. Um, there's nothing I would have no objection or different counsel to anything you just said. You've got to understand that also from the point of the government official, they're under even more time pressures. If you calculate the number of visa officers there are relative to the number of visa applications there are worldwide, you've also heard at the CLE those numbers. I don't need to repeat them. And um, having been a former not visa officer, but um, in a former life, I, um, I set up the um, program, the PNP for Ontario, and, and adjudicated all the early cases for the Ontario PNP. And um, in that capacity, you, you also appreciate getting to the point as the visa officer. So that, you know, I, I, I think that the, the visa office is also a place that appreciates say what you want to say. You don't need to say it in a thousand pages. And in fact, it can be counterproductive to do it because you lose, you lose the forest for the trees. There is definitely 
judgment that has to be exercised at the point of drafting those applications because you do have to trust your professional instinct and you have to develop your professional instinct for what is a weak argument. And if you know you're writing a weak argument, I think you, you gain more by leaving it out than by including it in there. Yeah, I mean, everybody would like to list off all their grievances. And certainly if you spend the time and someone's and all the components that go into any one of these applications, of course, there's more than 10 points in it. But ultimately, there's always going to be two or three that you can that, that, that you can crystallize is what are the key errors that you think were made with this application or what are the three key grievances that you have. And, um, you know, when you work in government like I did, you very quickly learn that when you're writing a minister's brief, you don't have 30 pages to tell the minister what you would like to. Uh, I, I realize that sometimes the legal profession um, encourages you to do the opposite and a 30 page brief to your client um, might be seen as a good thing although I, I, I don't know if I always shared that, that view when I was in private practice but in any event um, definitely when you're writing from a government perspective brevity is golden and your minister does not have time if you're the immigration bureaucrat feeding up to whatever level you're at even if you're the deputy feeding up to your minister. Your minister wants to read a one-page briefing. Maybe there will be some background papers that he can get to when he has time, but there's no reason why your factum has to be squeezed onto single-space writing at 30-page limits. Um, that can be done very... Um, it, it's. I realize it's tougher to write to get things down in a concise manner, but it really is valued by the judges when you, when you try to put that effort in. I had an experience early in my career where a justice of the federal court said to me, that she had the impression that I was arguing that it was just the vibe of something that was unconstitutional. <laughs> and it was a hard thing to hear standing in front of the court, but it was absolutely right. And I do remind myself of that because we do get super involved with our clients' cases. We feel sometimes very strongly the injustice of something, but when you kind of go back and look at it from a, from a, a legal perspective, um, she was entirely right. And so I'm always mindful of that when I draft these days. And so, and so, if you do go through those little tips and pointers, you'll see a lot of a lot of my comments speak to these kinds of um, this kind of discussion that we're having. Well, I think I've and I remember my, the first fact I drafted as an articling student in criminal law, and, and uh, my my principal, who was had thirty years of experience in front of the court of appeal, just covered half of it in red. And there were things that I had I had written that he just considered ridiculous, like you know. The, and he affected an exit from the vehicle. And he's like, what does that even mean? And I'm like, he got out of the car. He's like, so say he got out of the car. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, you know, because I had just come out of law school. And that was, uh, and now I, I look at some of the things that I've seen uh, and some of the virtuosos in the, in the uh, Supreme Court of Canada, mm-hmm. um, watching people like Marlis Edward or John, John Norris um, and, and just picking up one of their factums and seeing what they can do with an intervener's factum in five or ten pages is amazing. I mean, I, I there was more content and more substantive content in 10 pages of, of one of Marlis's factums than in any factum I've ever drafted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, you know, and I, I remember on Apple Napa, the, the factum that she filed on behalf of the BCCLA um, had an entire theory of overbreadth set out in 10 pages, um, which... Uh, and which was used by the court and, and which was, was ex- really went down to the point and was able to, to distill that. And I've, I've learned, I think, exactly what you said, is that it takes an enormous amount more work 
Um, and I spend more and more time on my overviews now than on the rest of my uh, than on the rest of my memos at mm-hmm. the leave stage and using that page page and a half of overview. Um, and I think Justice Snyder uh, used to refer to it as the, as the puke test. That, uh, <laughs> she was you need to make, you need to convince <laughs> me you need to convince me that this decision is so bad that it makes me puke in the first page and a half. You're going to get leave. She was the justice and, who called me. <laughs> we oh, was talking right. about the vibe. Justice, justice Snyder was just totally right. She cut so, right. right to <laughs> to the heart of the matter. Well, I was I was um, actually the the appointee who replaced Justice Snyder when she retired, and so um, I I have to be. Um, I, listen, I have to listen carefully both to what Justice Snyder said and the puke test whenever I look at a leave application from this point forward. But um, uh, I, I was going to make one other point on on that issue. Um, and Peter, I'm becoming an old man because that point has escaped my mind right now, but, but keep going with the discussion and, and uh, it'll come back to me in a second. It strikes me that there's a bit of a professional hazard. We love crafting really clever arguments and sometimes we can get very, very attached to them. You talked about your history as a screenwriter, but I know that, um, uh, one of the things that goes to, that, that's advice provided to screenwriters is that they need to be prepared to slaughter their darlings. <laughs> and I think that, that you have to think about that in drafting a, a legal argument as well. You might be super attached to this argument, but it might not pass the puke test. And, so. and sometimes you've just got to let things go. And thanks for reminding me, Deanna, of, of what I was thinking about. It was just that. I mean, writing is no different whether you're a, a good writer. Uh, the hallmarks of that are equally applicable to a law student, to a judge, to a lawyer, and to anybody who reads any of their papers. Ultimately, you need to be writing for your client. I mean, it's the client who, who the justice is going to meet out its ends. And so, you know, you have to keep that in mind. And so throwing in um, 10 fancy-sounding Latin terms and mystifying judgments with all sorts of um, tangential arguments doesn't help your client understand why he's being removed from Canada or why he's being allowed to stay or, or get the case reconsidered by a visa officer. And it doesn't help the lawyer, I don't think either, understand what you're really saying as a judge. And, and the converse works as well. If you're trying to clutter up your arguments with verbosity and um, making things um, making things purposefully complex, you, you're probably going to end up with a problem. So try to keep it simple and sweet, and you'll do better at the end of the day. I guess one of the things I, that that's one of the big challenges I have with the federal court compared to the other tribunals that I deal with and the other courts that I deal with um, is when I'm applying for leave in the federal court, I don't know who's going to be looking at my leave application. And the scope of experience on the court is very, very different. So you come from an immigration background. You have a a wealth of experience, practical experience on the immigration side. And other than Justice Sandoui, there's nobody else on the court that has that kind of experience. There are a number of judges who've been around for many, many years um, and who do have experience on the bench, um, and some of them from the Department of Justice, or Justice Shore was a, was a, uh, uh, a member at the IRB. Um, but in terms of how many of the basics to, to set out in a leave application, and how much to go over the basics, 
you, what's your sense in terms of what your colleagues are, 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 are looking for or actually need in terms of setting out the basics of how the LMIA process works or how the, uh, you know, what the test is for internal flight alternative in, in, uh, for refugees or the, in terms of these issues, um, how much do we need to be going back to basics, especially when it could be the newest appointee coming from an IP background who sits down and looks at my leave application. That's a great point. And all the judges get trained um, when they come in. Um, we also are fortunate at the federal, uh, trained in each of these diverse areas that we cover. So you could ask me the same questions of maritime law when I received an emergency for an arrest of a ship last night here in Vancouver. Um, so we're all confronted with that and you have to use your common sense. If this is a highly complicated exception to the principle of non-refoulement and you're talking about section 115 and how it fits together with the refugee scheme and post, post acquisition of status of PR status under that class of immigration, you're talking about exceptions to um, an exception to how immigrants normally come into Canada and, and you're right it can get it can get pretty complex and so there's no magic answer or silver bullet as to how to how to skin that particular cat but I think that you've got to just use your common sense again be brief say that in general there's a you know people would know that you're supposed to apply for a visa from abroad, and but, but refugees, I suppose, uh, get into Canada in, in different manners if they're claiming status here, uh, claiming refugee status in Canada, and then explain, but explain from the perspective of a refugee, and this person got their status, and now it's being taken away, and there's a serious consequence to refoulement, and, and what the exception is that's at stake or that's being argued here and why you feel that it's wrong. I mean, I, I can't really comment. There's so many different areas. There's so many different primers you can give, uh, whether it's IFA, whether it's the latest on H&C, whether it's what's going on in the LMIA or the ever-changing the, the ever express entry point system. Um, there, there's there's a, a, a multitude of different things that come under the immigration umbrella. And so how are you going to tell that IP specialist um, who's just joined the bench? Because even all the IP specialists soon become um, very knowledgeable on immigration law after they've joined the court just by virtue of doing those leaf boxes or by... Um, although the new judges don't necessarily immediately do leaves, they certainly get their share of immigration cases when they join the court. So um, there is a, a, a body of expertise that's built up amongst all judges, but when it's always good, whether you are dealing with an expert or not in that field, to still give a small primer, an introduction, an overview like you were talking about. It is so crucial and often it's forgotten because you're so acquainted with those facts. You're so married to them. You want to dive right into them. What was the problem? Why didn't the officer go and interview this neighbor? And what was procedurally unfair about it? Forgetting the big picture, setting out for the judge. This is the problem that my, my client had when they applied for their visa and said they worked for Joe's Barbershop. And so, um, so it's, it's, it's really about the, that, that, that little overview would be a little longer. That little primer would be slightly longer if it were a case dealing with 
refoulement of a refugee. And I think perhaps going back to this notion of the economy of of, art, of the articulation of the issues is to try and use that primer and also kind of use it as a, a mechanism to focus what the issues are. Uh, Peter talked about how he spends the majority of his time on the overview. For me, I spend the majority of my time on the issues and I'll actually spend you know, drafting and redrafting how to frame the issues just to sort of make sure that I've, because everything kind of for me emanates from that, that I've organized the argument so that everything I'm saying is relevant and ties back to the issues I'm trying to put across. And, right. And and so if you, if, if it's a common fact pattern to the court and hopefully your listeners would know what those might be, if it's an H and C situation, maybe it's a best interest of the child or if it's a refugee situation, it could be a credibility issue coming from a certain country. And um, you might know from if you're a diligent litigation lawyer, or even as I said, if you're not, but you're keeping up with the law, you might know that that is a country that's produced a lot of similar type claims or credibilities being an issue in that particular context or state per- persecution with that particular, with that particular gang. Um, and it's a general versus personalized risk issue. Well, those are, those are questions that we need, we, we tend to see more and you might not need as much of an intro. Um, because everybody knows what credibility is. Everybody knows, um, at least all the judges know what the issues are when it comes to looking at an RPD credibility issue. I mean, the stakes go up a little bit maybe if um, it's an RAD issue. And has RAD looked at the credibility in the right way? Well, everybody knows about Hurriglika, who's listening to this podcast, I would think. But um, if, but maybe not. Maybe they were away for a few months and traveling in Europe and they missed her Glika. And so even if they're, um, you know, a, a great lawyer, then, then it would be helpful to, and even for the client, I think it's helpful when uh, hopefully they would want to review the factum. Um, at some point, they would understand that, that kind of overview of what ultimately was wrong. If that client reads 10 issues, they're going to be confused as to really what are you getting at was the problem in my case. Um, We see that also sometimes with certified questions. It's great if, uh, as your listeners probably know, if if you do want to have a hope of taking immigration cases on appeal, the judge has to certify a question uh, in most cases. Um, And so you should come to court prepared. Now, it's a fine balance. You don't want to come to court with a a shopping list of two pages of certified questions. Again, they can be distilled into one, maybe two issues. And I'm certainly not advocating that or encouraging every lawyer to come to court with certified questions because most areas, most cases have been covered before and would, would not be able to be certified, meet the test. But um, certainly if you think that there is a question that, that cries out for um, clarification and um, is, is an issue that needs answering by the Court of Appeal, then um, be prepared. Don't ask the court to come back and send your answer in or, or have post-hearing submissions on that issue. Just like with your fact and be prepared at least have it, have a draft question written out in advance. Well, the I just other thing to, with sorry. Oh, just on certified questions. The other thing for me is always, uh, and it's a, it's always a temptation when you have an interesting issue the, to seek a certified question because oh, we'll be able to go to the court of appeal. But uh, I often come to the realization that 
the judge is only going to certify a question if I win. And if I win, I don't want a certified question. And so, you know, you don't want the minister to be able to appeal the decision. And so Mm -hmm. asking for a certified question that will only be certified if you win is not uh, not the best strategy, although it is tempting uh, when you mm-hmm. have these great issues that you're like, this is a great issue. Mm-hmm. We should be able to take this to the Court of Appeal. Um, and uh, I've, I've had to... Had and, and sometimes I, well, you have that burning where you, you realize, oh, right, I don't want... I actually don't want that question mm-hmm. certified. I don't want a question certified or, or, or if more, I win. Or more importantly, does your client um, want, because maybe you're planning to do it pro bono, but there's a cost to going to the Court of Appeal if, if your client is going to be paying for, for that appeal. So that's a, a practical question. You'd want to obviously canvas. Um, ultimately, your client um, is the one who'd have to say whether they wanted to go on appeal or not. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, yeah, those those are delicate situations. You need to consider them. There certainly are cases where the questions are certified for where the applicant, um, if the applicant is the uh, intending immigrant or the existing immigrant, where they will lose and a question gets certified. So it it um, it does happen, and um, it's important to think about that in advance and not suddenly come to an epiphany at our. 129 of the hearing that I'm about to get asked if I have any certified questions, what do I do now? Right. Oh, fair enough. And it's something that we uh, spend many hours poring over in terms of how to certify the questions. Uh, because mm-hmm. one of the first problems you're going to end up in, in, at the Court of Appeal is, was this question properly certified? And we talked about that in a previous podcast with, uh, with Raj Sharma, where... His, his application was dismissed uh, at the Court of Appeal because the Court of Appeal was of the view that this question should never have been certified in the first place. That's right. And so, you, you again, you want to be helpful to the court, no less in, in when you're coming with legal authorities and you want to come with the most recent legal authority and, um, when it, and, and or you're going to want to not mislead the judge in any way or at least highlight facts that, that or, or pull the wool over certain facts. Um, just like in those areas, you want to, you're going to want to be helpful to the court. And that's ultimately how those lawyers who gain the most respect, um, of judges in the judiciary in Canada do so. It's by bringing forth their strongest case, not necessarily everything possible. And it might be judicious in your case not to raise a certified question and to realize this has already been addressed where the court, the court of appeal will rake that trial judge over the coals and ultimately you, because you're going to be the first person that faces the wrath of that panel of why are you here? What were you thinking? Your point too about opening the door to an appeal that your client doesn't wish to pursue uh, is is really well taken as well. That's part of the whole professional responsibility is not just sort of getting into the groove of, well, this is part of my process, but making sure you're actually still always acting on behalf of your client's instructions. Sure. Um, and, and, and on that, that, that point that was just raised, when you are providing authorities to the court in one way that would be consistent with Peter's practice tip before to be concise and whittle down your arguments to crystallize them to the bare bones, um, you need not quote 10 citations from the last five years that have all stood for the same proposition. Just go to the most recent one and, or if it's not the most recent one, certainly the highest authority. The Supreme Court has provided that point of law, just um, state that Supreme Court, and maybe that was three years ago. So quote the latest federal court case that's continued to um, to apply that law. But we don't need to see 
a list um, that can take up physical space in your materials of, of 10 cases because, again, there's only so much that we can read. Well, I also often find that the more recent cases will summarize the, the best parts of the previous cases in any event. Mm-hmm, and sure. so you can you can just rely on the most recent case and have the six citations that you wanted because they're right there in front of the judge in the case that you put forward. Um, and so it's... Uh, which is easier for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, the judge doesn't have to technically cite if the law is that um, the immigrant shall provide an application form and the law has recognized that, then and somehow that came out of jurisprudence. I realize in this area it wouldn't, but um, then you don't... The fact that a case has said it does not necessarily have to be cited. It's enough for the judge to say the applicant has to provide that form. Um, but some judges do want to cite, um, and I know that's not a good example, but do want to cite legal propositions that that um, the um, fear of, uh, that let's say, um, a persecution has to be personalized to the individual. Well, that would be a point of law that you would want to um, that you would want to back up with the latest authority and, and one that summarizes the law would be particularly useful, especially if it was if it was a legal point that had been under debate. You referenced earlier uh, something about express entry, and I think uh, that's it strikes me because setting out precisely what the authorities are has become more and more complex in this area in particular in terms of, I mean, when you're talking about express entry, it's legislation with ministerial instruction layout on top of that and, you know, the ranking system and often multiple classes, you're looking at eligibility in the federal skilled worker class only to show that they should have got that invitation to apply in the provincial Mm -hmm. nominee class. So you're sort of, as immigration policy has become so much more Convoluted. Let's be let's be honest. Trying to be trying to set out in very concise and clear language. Well, this is the legal issue. Has become much more challenging for for advocates. Is this going to be your silly rules thing again? Comes up in every podcast. So yes, it is. And what's the silly rule? Well, the silly rule is you know um, there's lots of them. We did an entire podcast on silly rules actually, um, but. You know, but when you're dealing with like intersecting eligibility issues and process and electronic forms and profiles followed by applications, it really does, when you're trying to set out, well, here is the, the issue, here are the documents that I'm referring to, they can very easily <laughs> uh, become quite numerous. And so uh, I think it has made the task of trying to be concise and being economical and for the purpose of effective advocacy, it's made that far more challenging for for practitioners, I think. Yeah, um, well, you know, there are, I I, I recognize that, but there will often be one part, let's say you're referring to a manual, an immigration manual, a policy manual, or a guideline, and it will often be one guideline or one specific section of the policy manual that you're trying to highlight as the genesis of this problem or the, the, the answer to where the error lies. And so you can certainly, what happens in other areas of law where are, where volumes of documents are much greater than immigration? IP is one example uh, that our court confronts 
often, and you, you have boxes and boxes of documents. We have uh, notice of compliance or knock cases that um, get unwieldy and nothing even compared to what an immigration, a large immigration record might look like. Uh, Counselor are often uh, encouraged to, number one, provide a primer to the judge uh, in advance of the hearing. Now, that's not always possible in the immigration setting, but case management is possible in immigration. In fact, I'm going directly from this interview to sit on a case management for immigration cases that I set my, myself when I heard, um, uh, I forget if it was a motion or a JR um, last week, and I said, this is silly, the number of cases and then the number of issues that we can easily put into a case management track to expedite this process and simplify it. Similarly, with documents, if you have 10 boxes, there are ways of simplifying that for the court. Um, both through, uh, well, one, one way of simplifying things is through case management and whittling down the issues, getting things out of the way if there's a lot of mess. But similarly, in huge amounts of documents, you can create a consolidated, um, a consolidation of what is that one page of that one manual. You don't need the 40, 50, 100 page manual on citizenship if you really are only concerned about one page. Similarly, what's that operations bulletin that you're concerned about? Or what are the ministerial instructions? You can boil them down. And consolidation, is a consolidated book, is not something we see in immigration, but certainly it, it could be something that people could think about. Um, I realize that this is not the IP bar, and, and there's obviously differences when you're dealing with a, a huge multinational and, and the resources they have in preparing a case. But um, it is something to consider, and, and um, the other thing that could be helpful in reducing clutter in immigration cases is there is a list of immigration authorities that is recognized by the court and that you do not need to reproduce in your book of authorities, and you can simply refer to, um, refer to that without having to produce a huge thick, and both reducing costs and, and paper both uh, for the environment and for your client and for for you dealing with all of this. But even in the application documents themselves, like the to print out an express entry application can sometimes be a 200-page document, and then all of the supporting documents submitted as well. Um, are you suggesting some way of consolidating those application documents or including just the components that you want to draw the court's attention to specifically? You could because because realistically for the leave, if that were the case you're and, and you get leave, I realize what you're saying is the application record and you have to get over that significant hurdle of getting leave because it's a minority of cases that actually get leave. Um, it, you you want to ensure you put your best foot forward and you don't want to risk missing anything. But I've just told you the reality at the beginning of the podcast of what it's like for judges to go through leaves and, and the reality that the judge is not going to be able to pour through every single page and every single line on all of those applications. I don't think it's a bad idea to come at it with the perspective of what would be a, what would look like a nice consolidation if I was presenting that book to the judge on the day of the trial or the hearing. And you know that it's not going to, the court is not going to be bereft of those documents when it does come to the hearing, should you be granted leave, because it will be in the certified tribunal record, the CTR, in any event. So in some respects, your application record will duplicate that in any event. So why not say, here's my problem. 
it'll help you again in trying to crystallize the issues. I'm concerned about what was at page three. It said that the applicant had had this experience and that it, it, there's nothing that reflected it was part-time experience. And, and here is here is the problem. And I don't see any reason why you need 200 pages to point out that particular problem and, and let the uh, tribunal or in, in that case, the visa office produce that when they do their rule nine um, um, production. Yeah. I mean, and, and like I said at the beginning, the one thing that I, I, the one caveat I have with respect to putting condensed books in is to make sure that you don't leave something out that goes against you deliberately. And, and then it shows up in the respondent's record. Look what they're hiding. Look what they're not, look what they're not pointing out. Sure. Um, although I have to say that it's very similar to what we do as lawyers all the time. I mean, even as a criminal lawyer, I mean, I deal with, you know, I'm dealing with a, uh, a trucking company right now that's been charged uh, criminally for not complying with LMOs and, and the way that they, the, the, the previous version of the labor market opinions. Um, and, for me, I don't do a lot of uh, work permit stuff, but I'm working with one of the other lawyers in my office. She's very, very familiar with the intricacies of how to make an LMO application, of how to do all these things. She knows the regulations inside out. And for me, it's really a question of sitting down with her and saying, what do I need to understand to get what they're saying they did wrong? So they're saying that this is criminal conduct. Well, why? Why is it that paying the client paying like everybody else in the trucking industry does by the mile is wrong when you were forced to convert it on an LMO application into an hourly wage. And so I need to understand why, where, what did they sign? Which page did it say? What did they, okay. So these are the five pages we're talking about. So there's, you know, 5,000 pages of disclosure. These are the five pages that really matter to me. The LMO application said this on it. This is the process that they went through. These are the, so the, the, the whole case is going to turn on those five pages as well as where this fictional $23 number came from for these long haul truckers that are, according to Service Canada, apparently getting paid by the hour, even though the entire industry says that never happens. Mm. Um, so those, that's, that's the, and then the entire case will turn on that, on those questions. I don't need to understand the other details. And so they've, the, the trucking company has explained to me all kinds of things about how they come up with these numbers and how things work. And this is how you get paid. And this is, you get these miles, you don't get these miles. And it doesn't, you know, yeah, th those for me are details. But we do that all the time in, in our, in our everyday work, whether we're judges or whether we're lawyers. I have to be able to weed out the extraneous stuff because the stuff my refugee clients consider to be relevant is unlimited. For sure. Well, Mario Bellissimo, one of our colleagues in the immigration field, likes to say that he uh, he's at, at an advantage when he's dealing with the litigation side of things because since he doesn't do the solicitor's work, he can come at the issues like with a ba like a baby's you know mind. You know, not under sort of come at it with those fresh eyes. Like what actually matters in this, and being able to distill almost from that naive standpoint. And it also then prepares you for how to present the issue for a judge who may or may not have that sort of intimate understanding of how the rules work and distilling it to what actually matters to the case. Well, as you know, the leave test is, is there an arguable issue here? And, and, um, and so you need to just convince the judge and the judge is not going to be able to appreciate the, the, again, the fact that you throw too much at the judge, um, 
rather than what is the essential mistake and does this mistake merit a full hearing? That's ultimately what the judge is trying to, to decide. And obviously looking at the standard of review, is, is it reasonable or do I owe such a high degree of deference? And this was a credibility finding. And really, even though there was a, a, a mistake here, there's, you know, 10 others and those haven't been addressed. I mean, whatever the particular facts of that leave application are, you're going to really want to get it at the heart of it and say, here's why, you know, even though it was a credibility finding, all of the credibility findings fall because of, of these three issues here where they are and, and point out, you know, I realize most times you wouldn't have a transcript, but if you happen to have a transcript of that hearing, just put in those pages of where it happened. What's the point of putting in a 150 page transcript when you're referring to two pages and that transcript is going to be produced in the CTR in any event. I think we've, we focused a fair bit on written advocacy, and I just wanted to maybe spend a minute or two just talking about the oral advocacy component. So, I mean, in terms of oral advocacy, again, I would encourage people to look at the attached document that is, is going to be put on, I believe, with, with the podcast. Um, and so that has some of my personal tips of what is effective oral advocacy and what isn't. It's not, I can tell you one thing that is definitely not effective is treating a hearing as a reading class and, um, or practicing, um, how to deliver, uh, you know, thinking of yourself as the author of the document and you're now, going to present that great piece of literature for the judge and going through it paragraph by paragraph and reading what's in there and then saying, now we're going to turn to the case of Smythe versus the Queen. And at paragraph 64, it says, and then can, and go and read paragraph 64 for the judge. Um, that you sometimes see, surprisingly, I know as public speakers, both of you would know that that is not a recommended practice. But um, some people don't realize that the judge is capable of reading it, even if the, but the judge happens to be um, sight disabled, as the, the judge I clerked for was. The judge will have a, a, a mechanism to be able to get through those materials. And so um, you don't, uh, don't spend your time on those, um, on those tactics because you'll end up either losing the judge or you just won't get through what, what the key arguments are. Rather say, you know, the, 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 you can refer to paragraph 40 of my factum. Uh, hopefully it's paragraph 20 and not 40, but um, there, and, and, and you can keep that factum short, but just be concise. Same as written advocacy, be concise uh, and really try to tell a story when you're in there. Um, you start with the overview and, and your point about telling the judge where you're going to go with your arguments. And really, this is public speaking 101. You tell your audience what you're going to tell them. Then you tell it to them and not in not an elongated fashion. And then you, f you finish up. And, you, and, and within that, there's ways to captivate the audience and there's ways to captivate the judge. It's not by hyperbole. It's not by using alarmist terms or offensive terms or calling the visa officer names when they're not there to defend themselves, but it's by using terminology that would clearly reflect that in a judicial review context, what the visa officer did, while perhaps well-intentioned, was wrong, 
in law or was unreasonable in the application of the facts? And why is it? And then tell the story and, and weave it together such that you get the judge's attention and ultimately you convince the judge that what you're trying to do, which is this was wrong and, and justice requires that it be sent back and reconsidered or whatever remedy you're asking for. Um, and so I, I guess that would be one of my main highlights about oral advocacy, but the others um, certainly have, have a, a look at the paper. I think for me, oral advocacy and written advocacy are quite different beasts. And I think that key to success in oral advocacy is to recognize that fact. The oral advocacy, unlike what Peter was saying about written advocacy, where you're not writing to a specific audience, in oral advocacy, it, if you're treating it as a conversation, reading the cues that are coming from, uh, from, from the bench, if it's pretty clear that the judge thinks it's a bad argument, then that is something that you should read and take into consideration, not linger on something that they clearly aren't, aren't buying and uh, being dynamic. So you might have expected you were going to be focusing on one, but when you see interest in a different argument, then you have to be live to that and shift and change your focus to what's going to be successful. That's effective oral advocacy, I think. Yeah, you, you, the judge will, in these cases, the judge has read. Um, I mean, there's always exceptions when the judge may have uh, been sideswiped by something else and just didn't have a chance to get the things. But in most cases, the judge will have had a bench memo from their law clerk and will have read um, the, all the materials. And certainly I try to come into every um, case at minimum having read the factums, the, the proceedings below. And so you know what you're concerned about and what doesn't trouble you. And you're only human at the end of the day as a judge. And, and um, some judges prefer, prefer to be sphinx-like and, um, and, and um, be like the pyramids in Egypt. And um, just, uh, but there's other style. I happen to be a little bit more interventionist. And, and so it just depends on the style of the judge. But if the judge does decide to talk, it's probably for a reason. And uh, as I said, we're very busy, so we're not trying to prolong the hearing. It's just that we're trying to say, this is what troubles me about your case, or this is what really interests me. And so, yes, that will be a cue. And so to then say, well, I'm going to ignore that question, but because I'm going to go on to, I, I can't get to all my other arguments. Um, you know, rather, if you're in that situation, answer the judge's questions, because that's probably where the key to the case is, and then say, but if you feel that those other arguments are so crucial, say, you know, um, Justice Diner, I, I would I would like you to still refer to my argument on procedural fairness because I do think that there is some merit to that as well. And you can find that at pages 10 to 12 of my factum, but, you know, there's no time to talk about it. In, in I think that's that's a better approach than not being mindful that the court does have time. When we set hearings for 90 minutes, there's a reason. Um, it's not just the judge. It's the other counsel may have things to get to. It's the registry that does. And it's the whole process. So, you know, that's the other thing is, is, is try to be emotionally intelligent as well as intellectually intelligent. There are other things other than just yourself in that courtroom. I found even sometimes asking the judge, just saying, this is what I'm intending to do in this and focusing on this and, um, and, and asking for feedback, I think, uh, often serves quite well because they can say, actually, no, I've already read all of that. And here's what I think about this. And you can really spare a lot of time to focus on things that are more contentious for that judge. When I find also just watching 
watching the oh, judge sure. because a lot of times, and, and I, I actually prefer to have 11 o'clock hearings versus having 9 o'clock hearings um, for judges I don't know because I can sit in and watch the first hearing that they have and just get a sense, one, of the mood, but two, of how do they use their pen? How do they use their... Because some judges don't engage in the way that Justice Dine... And, and some judges are very different on the bench than they are in person. You meet them at a conference or something like that. They're very engaged. And then on the bench, very few questions or very little engagement. Um, but you can learn a lot by when they drop their pen um, or when they stop typing or when they turn away or there's there's certain things that uh, that judges will do on the bench that signal very clearly I'm, I'm done with this issue yeah. <laughs> let's move on to the next issue um, and that's uh, you know they're very difficult uh, uh, lessons to learn uh, over the years and, and sometimes it's very difficult to read what's going on in the, in, in the mind of the judge um, often because the judge I, I expect doesn't always know which way they're going, um, you know, if you if you come in front of uh, a certain more experienced or, or vocal judges, uh, it'll be very clear right from the beginning which mm-hmm. side, uh, I mean, Justice Hughes isn't going to hold his cards close to his chest in terms of where he his views are on a particular case. Um, that's actually very helpful for me. I, I find it very much a lot easier to appear in front of someone like that who says, Mr. Edelman, you've got a steep hill to climb if you're going to convince me of X and it's like okay well we know where this is going Um, for sure time to climb the hill let's let's have at it and you you know you know where you're you're going and Justice Snyder was like that as well Uh, there was no there was no question where where things uh, where things were Um, and in terms of oral advocacy I think one of the things that I find um, is the, the chance to to humanize the case is something that is aside from answering the questions um, and and watching some of the and, and again um, if, if you have a chance to watch the video of Joe Arvey uh, pleading in front of the Supreme Court in the Carter case the, the right to die case it was a very um, passionate plea at the beginning of it was five five minutes or so but very um, uh, humanizing of the entire case, which ultimately was a very human case, and most of these are. And I think that's one of the things that the written advocacy doesn't allow us to do in the same way that oral advocacy does, is to say, look, we're dealing with people. The people are here. These are, this is the family that we're talking about. This mm-hmm. is, this is, these are, these are real people. Um, because these do have very serious consequences for the people involved mm-hmm. and and I think that that's that's one of the things that I I sometimes forget because I focus on legal issues mm-hmm. and in my oral advocacy that I sometimes forget and when I see other people do it I, I remember how important that is to bring that back in because it's not just about uh, you know they are legal issues but they're legal issues with very real uh, human consequences. But also Justice Diner has talked about the, the perils of dogmatism in oral advocacy. And I think um, just in terms of what Peter's saying is that uh, it doesn't serve you to sort of speak from a moral high ground kind of perspective and, and recognition that everyone is in this process because of the intention for justice to be served. And I think that that kind of condescension can really um, be a, quite a significant disservice to your client. Treating this as this, everyone is trying to get to the bottom of this issue, I think, uh, is, is, is another 
uh, key effective advocacy strategy? Well, it's it's a challenge of being a lawyer is that good lawyers are going to be passionate about their area. They're going to be passionate about their clients and they're going to want to do good by their clients. And that is what you're paid for. And that is what the rules of professional conduct expect you to do is leave no stone unturned for your client. And that's your obligation. On the other hand, you do also have an obligation to represent yourselves as officers of the court, as lawyers within the justice system. And if it's a Section 48 um, argument you're coming to court with in a stay, you have to recognize that your, your friend on the other side, and we all know that they're not necessarily your friend, they may be, um, but your friend is asking for something that's abhorrent to your client and, and, and you know, probably to you because you're so invested in your case. But your friend is doing their job, no different than you're doing your job. And they also have a statute and a parliamentary obligation to uphold. And they're not evil people. They're just there to do their job. And um, so justice lawyers are, um, you know, uh, what I've seen uh, just take their take their role seriously and, and are ultimately trying to do the best for their clients and sure. um, it's not in line with what you want but you you have to remember that it's not personal and they they have a duty to uphold as well and so that's something we do note what the syndrome that you're talking about Deanna it, it doesn't help to personalize it and to attack the the other side no more than it does to take your anger out on the registry officer or the usher and um, or the visa officer. I mean, um, you know, the, the the government official also has a role to do, and they're a gatekeeper to Canada. And and um, just because you think that your client is the greatest um, individual in the world and could never have engaged in any fraud, does not necessarily you don't come from that same perspective and expertise as that officer who's seen you know, a thousand people like your client. And so while you may very well be right, and while there may be an injustice, you just have to put yourself in the shoes of the other side. And and perhaps, perhaps they were having a bad day, but more often they're not. They're just like you trying to do their job and do it as well as they can. Sure. It's an adversarial system, but that doesn't mean you need to be adversarial about it. And oftentimes, when you do actually treat opposing counsel as your friend, um, recognizing that they might actually be on the same side as you personally, but they still answer to a client and they've been given their instructions as well. And I think that that for me as a, as a junior practitioner was a real eye opener when I realized they actually, they fought the case. They fought my case to their client and, and weren't successful and they got their marching orders and they're appearing and they're doing the best job they can and right. they're also officers of the court. Mm-hmm. And again, that really, that, that caused me to like step off of my moral high ground and treat them like colleagues and because deep down they, they may very well agree with you but you would never know that and that may come out after the fact one day but um, while you're going through the process just remember that you may be on the other side I mean I understand before we were just getting ready for this podcast that you had a guest who talked about a case where he effectively argued the other side that he would normally have argued and you never know when you're going to have to argue the other side and 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 take all their positions on standard of review or whatever it might be or even if if you never have that case but it's simply one where you do really say you know um counsel justice counsel this cries out for settlement and and here's why and and if you've insulted and berated them and being unpleasant to them in your last case, 
it's it's again it's human it's emotional intelligence are they really going to be compliant and reasonable with those requests chances are see in court um, but but if you if you've been respectful and, and given them the the time in previous occasions I'm sure they're going to be more open to those suggestions when you need them and I think one of the best pieces of advice I got very early in my career was don't don't tell me that a police officer or a visa officer is abusive or corrupt or patently unreasonable or whatever it is show me let let let, let, the, let the decision maker right. decide and, and show me why show me that this person is and then um, and, and often the decision maker you know whether it's a, a federal court judge or an idea you know an IRB member or whoever it might be um, will in their decision be very clear about For their sure. views. If you can um, lead them to that feeling of indignation rather than instructing them that that's exactly. what they should feel yeah. like you're doing better. And uh, I've, I, I've found that uh, sure. my, my language, I've had to tone my language down. Uh, and it's like with emails, right? Don't write them. Uh, it's, wait 24 hours before you send that email that you, uh, which is one of the dangers of, of writing factums at the last minute that's as right. well, is that you, you are in the passion of the moment and rereading that factum is often a good idea uh, in terms of toning some of the language down because often the decisions do make me very angry. And, and, and it's also, those suggestions are so well taken and, and, and that's why you do want to prepare in advance. You don't want to procrastinate till the last day of your deadline and then try to rush it out or have to bring a motion for an extension. Um, that wastes everybody's time and puts your client obviously at a, at a disadvantage. But, but you, you, if you do prepare well, you can take that dispassionate look. You can pass the, the factum to a friend and see what they think or a colleague in the office, um, if you have that permission from your client and, um, and get some, and get some suggestions. Um, I, you know, again, um, the, the bar is helpful and, um, I'm all for mentoring and, and, um, why not if you're beginning in this area? Try to get some advice and practice tips, and 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 also it will allow you to be more precise in your writing. If you make mistakes grammatically because you're in a rush to get it out, unfortunately, that can ultimately affect your client because the judge thinks, well, they're being careless with their writing. They're probably being careless with their legal arguments. It's not a fair assumption, but it, it's one that you can open yourself up to um psychologically coming coming from the judges like like in any area of work you want to be as as precise and professional as possible so do try in your legal references in the cases that you cite and in what you put down to get it down accurately no typos grammatically correct no the, we just filed our fact our factum for the sec and tran i think probably between 15 and 20 colleagues have given feedback on it or mm. have reviewed it uh, mm. And a lot of things got cut that I would have, sure. uh, you know, where it's like, oh, this, this argument's not going anywhere, or this, the, you need, you need to tone this language down, or you know, that's, uh, and those are, those, that's a very useful process. I, I don't always have the time for it, mm -hmm. um, or I don't always make the time for it, yeah. um, but it, I should. And, uh, you know, it, it, it makes a huge difference. So one thing that um, I know we're coming to the end of our time, I, I would say in closing is, um, un unless you have any other questions for me, um, is that we do have for the areas where you may feel frustrations with the court and you may want to bring them up or with justice, there is a forum for that, which I've said is not 
Um, it's, it's not the, the, the forum for that would not be at the time of your hearing, taking your frustrations out on the other side or the court. Um, but, but we do have a liaison committee for immigration that we meet twice traditionally yearly at the Ontario Law Society annual summit tends to take place in the last week of November. I think it's the 22nd or 23rd of November this year that we're holding the meeting. Um, and we also hold one in conjunction with the CBA annual conference, which is in Toronto next year in June 8th to 10th. And so that's a, that's a good forum for it's open. People can come out to it and make their views known and meet and, and just meet their colleagues and, um, justice colleagues as well, because some do come out from the Department of Justice. And we're going to be, I'm, I'm actually taking over as the chair of that committee and we're going to be looking to refresh. Um, see what organizations may want to become involved um, with input into the committee. And, and but in any event, I, we do have a web page where minutes go from, from this committee and the federal court uh, website. And so it's something that you may want to watch out for and potentially participate in um, in the upcoming years. I agree. It's a really casual kind of an environment and it, it, it tends to be a really great opportunity to kind of hear what's going on and to develop those relationships in a different, without, without wearing a gown. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And, uh, it's, it's great to be able to do this, uh, to, to have you on the podcast. Uh, so it's a, it's a new experience for us, but it's great that, uh, you know, that, that the federal courts will participate mm-hmm. in these kinds of things as well. So thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to do this again at some point in the future. Sure. I'm happy to do so. And once I've had a year of the committee under my belt, I can consider coming back at this time next year and discussing what what substantive issues we're talking about on the uh, liaison committee. For sure. Let's do that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, thank you for joining us on Borderlines today. You can find us at borderlines.ca. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review. It helps other people to find the podcast. Thank you to Robin Bajer and Funk in the Trunk for our music, and to our podmaster, Makeli Higgins, who's helping us to up the level of our sound uh, for, the, for future podcasts. Woo!